Hello and welcome to a special episode of Double Reel, the monthly magazine podcast for the discerning film nerd. This episode is called the Cronenberg Institute. Following on from previous years, I've done another annual project in which I showcase the films of a great director by watching one of them a month for 12 months. The first two annual projects I did were The Year of the Carpenter in 2021, where I did the top 12 best-rated John Carpenter films on IMDb. Last year I did 2022, A Kubrick Odyssey, where I covered every feature film directed by the great Stanley Kubrick. Those are still available to listen to if you haven't caught them. The title of this year's project will tell you that it's about the films of David Cronenberg. As before, this is a collection of the features I did throughout the year on the podcast, so if you've listened to all our episodes for 2023, you will have heard them before. If so, you might want to skip this, or you might enjoy listening to them again, collected together, and their progression through the year. And if you haven't heard them before, this is a great deep dive into Cronenberg, and hopefully a good showcase for our film podcast that might tempt you into subscribing. It's called the Cronenberg Institute in honour of the strange worlds created in many of his films. They often involve a shadowy organisation just known by a single name, where scientists, doctors or some other group operate a shadowy scheme that usually ends up in body horror and mayhem. Each month we paid a visit to the Cronenberg Institute, the mysterious laboratory where a unique filmmaker creates his often strange and terrifying visions for us to experience. The films I chose for the project included nine Cronenberg feature films that I haven't seen before in chronological order of their release. Then, three of my favourite films of his to top off the year. Here's the full list of films. Shivers, Rabid, The Brood, M. Butterfly, Spider, Eastern Promises, A Dangerous Method, Cosmopolis, Maps to the Stars, The Fly, Dead Ringers and Videodrome. I left out an experimental film he did back in 1970 called Crimes of the Future, which bears no relation to the recent film he directed with the same title. It's not really a film in the traditional sense. There's also a motorcycle B-movie called Fast Company he did in 1979, which doesn't really fit into his regular filmography, so I left it out. A lot of these films are good examples of what Cronenberg is best known for. Horror and science fiction stories featuring body horror and themes of sex, violence, decay and transformation. But as his career progressed from the 90s onwards, he branched out into other genres, including historical dramas, gangster films and historical dramas, in which he found other ways to explore the themes that interest him. Hopefully this will be a good introduction to the Cronenberg films you haven't seen, and maybe the discussion will make you look at the films of his that you have seen in a new way. Here it is, my film project for 2023, The Cronenberg Institute. I did have a news resolution because I kind of, what I've been doing is my news resolution is essentially a little film project. Uh, for 2021, I, I did a bunch of John Carpenter films. Last year, I did a bunch of, you know, all of Kubrick's films. So my resolution was very simply, I'd like to do another one of those because I've really enjoyed doing them. So my no, resolution... Hang on, hang on. Is it you of Abel? No. <laughs> and, and if you're not careful, that's going to be your resolution. So my, my <laughs> Jumanis... Is it Michael B? <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, it is it is David Cronenberg. Okay. So every month of this year, we're gonna I'm gonna pay a regular visit to the Cronenberg Institute. I gave it that name because there's always some sort of sinister institute where really weird body horror, you know, sick shit is going on in a Cronenberg film. So every month we're gonna visit the Cronenberg Institute, and and I'm gonna to see how much it messes with my mind. There used to be a nightclub in Aberdeen called Institute, and some pretty fucking sick shit went on in there as well. Yeah. Okay. Well, so that's, uh, that's an interesting. <laughs> that's an interesting parallel. Maybe maybe that kind of body horror has, has come to life in real life. Um, so there's a bit of a gap in my um, 
uh, in my Cronenberg uh, watching. There are a few films of his I haven't seen, so I'm going to watch those in chronological order. And then uh, I'm going to put three of my favourite Cronenberg films of all time that I have seen, like uh, to top it off at the end of the year. Um, there'll be a there'll be a list on Letterbox with all the films on it. Um, but let's keep it a surprise for you know if you want to on here. So I'm starting off with the first of his early films that I haven't seen, which is Shivers. I've kind of skipped past a couple of um, early experimental films. I'm, I'm not I'm not going to bother with those. And he did a motorcycle movie at one point, which isn't really typical Cronenberg. So we're getting into what you know proper Cronenberg. And in 1975, yeah. he did Shivers. Now Shivers is the first film where he really gets into his kind of body horror ideas. Um, it was partly funded by government money because the you know the Canadian government sort of funded like film projects. So there was a bit of an outcry that he did one of his sick Cronenberg films with taxpayers' money. Um, uh, even better, he had a morals clause in the flat he was renting at the time when he made this film, and uh, the 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 moral outcry to this movie led him to be evicted from the uh, from the film from from his from his home for making this film. Which uh, that's got to be a first that someone can actually be thrown out of their house because they made a film that people objected to. Um, it's set in a in an apartment building itself where a lot of weird, crazy shit is going on. In that sense, it reminded me a little bit of um, uh, High Rise. Uh, but Cronenberg was writing this film around about the same time J.G. Ballard was writing the novel High Rise, so it's just a coincidence. No one you know stole from anyone there; just great minds think alike. Um, it's very seventies. You know, the clothes and the cars and the style and everything. But in, in terms of the storyline, what it is, is that a, 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 a crazy scientist, there's always a crazy scientist, has is, is been trying to, he started out trying to um, uh, grow new organs. You grow organs, it was almost like a parasite inside human bodies, and you can grow yourself a new liver or a new kidney, which is better and easier and safer than transplants. Um, but it turns out he's a complete lunatic, and he actually starts using the, uh, or you know, uh, uses a young woman as his sex slave, and also grows parasites in her to try and see what happens. And one of those parasites basically turns into a a, a huge flesh-eating creature that jumps from person to person and turns him into a sex maniac. So she um, she becomes a, you know she gets overtaken by this parasite, wants to sleep with everything that moves. Everyone she sleeps with gets caught by the parasite. They go crazy and want to sleep with everything that moves. Before you know it, this apartment block is full of people kind of beating down doors, having like strange, you know, orgies because they've been overtaken by a mind control parasite. Um, and it's every bit as weird and disturbing as that description would suggest and every bit as weird and disturbing as you'd think because it's David Cronenberg. It is bonkers. Um, huh. I would say that... Similar to Day, uh, George Romero's early work, David Cronenberg's early films show how good he is, but you can see that it's a very low budget and he's relying on using some quite um, weak actors because he hasn't got you know some of the cast you know that he can call upon now when everyone's queuing up to be in a Cronenberg film. So there's some bits that are a bit clunky, right? Because, I mean, just one example, there's a, an old couple who are traumatised one minute because they've been attacked and only just escaped being taken over and then short, you know, in the next scene, they're sitting there watching television and it looks like nothing's happened because they're just not good enough actors to go from one thing to the other. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So some of it comes across a bit clunky, but there's lots of weird shit going on. Um, there's a there's a sign on the wall of the kind of the freaky institute that says sex is the invention of a very clever venereal disease. It's kind of showing David Cronenberg's kind of, you know, really sideways look at life. Um 
but I can see why it was very controversial. I mean, there's a scene in the lift where a, a man attacks, a man who's been overtaken by the parasite attacks a woman. There's no getting, getting around it. Once that parasite's taken a person over, if the next person they attack for sex, it's rape. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And the thing is, it's already horrible. It's not like everyone goes, oh, it's okay, that zombie's just eaten that person's flesh and disemboweled them. It's all horrible. But David Cronenberg adds this sexual dimension to it, which just makes it more disturbing. Mm-hmm. Because he, could take, could he takes it and sexualizes it. What he's basically saying is these people are sex crazed. And what do people do when they're sex crazed? They, they, you know, they, they attack each other, they attack everyone around them. And it does, it is... It is extra disturbing as a result, which is weird because the gore and the people being, you know, having their arms ripped off is is one thing, but the actual sexualized part of it is oddly more disturbing than than the violence, which I think is basically why Cronenberg made the film. I mean, he's basically saying, isn't that interesting that that the sexual side of it is the most disturbing side of it? It's also him getting a chance to to start with his um, his basically career long fascination with the body changing with body horror. Um, but it's it's uneven and it's it's on a low budget, so I I enjoyed it, but it's clearly inferior to it. To the once he starts working with Jeff Goldblum, Gina Davis, James Woods, and has bigger budgets, his films take a huge jump in quality. Do you know what I mean? Although he's obviously capable of totally freaking out an audience, is what you get from this movie. So early 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 movies. Sometimes it's known as the Parasite Murders. If you want to seek it out, it's not known by the same title in every territory, but it's either known as Shivers or the Parasite Murders. It's widely available. Uh, definitely worth a watch if you like that sort of thing, but it is very, very disturbing stuff. Um, that's uh, you know that that's my entry in you know the first visit to the Cronenberg Institute. That that's that's how that's panned out. Um, this is inspired in me an impromptu top ten, uh, as I always do. Uh, I always try and give the audience something extra for the, these films I do for the project. Um, because this film takes place pretty much entirely in an apartment block and that's kind of part of the, the setting, I've done a, a top 10 in no particular order of films that take place or mostly take place in apartment blocks. And it goes like this. High Rise, uh, Rear Window, obviously, uh, Wreck, The Apartment, Wait Until Dark, The Raid, obviously, Dread, mm. obviously, uh, Candyman, the 1992 original, Dark Water, the Japanese original, and Rosemary's Baby. Uh, a mostly very disturbing top 10 films. Oh, so oh. that so that's January's entry in uh, the the visit to the Cronenberg Institute. Next month's visit to the Cronenberg Institute will be his equally disturbing 70s follow-up, Rabid. Um, but that's all. Anything else to add for the roundup before we, uh, before we close and move on to I the features, mate? Don't think so. Well, thank you very much. That's the roundup. On with the pod. For me, I'm I'm in month two of my year-long project of, of the Cronenberg Institute. Uh, and this month, visiting the Cronenberg Institute brought us to Rabid. Now, this was his follow-up to uh, Shivers. Uh, essentially, what I'm doing, I'm, I'm, I'm filling in the blanks in some of the key films of his I haven't seen. So at the moment, I'm on his early years and the, the body, you know, very much in the body horror era. This is the follow-up to Shivers, and it's thematically similar, but he's got a bigger budget, some bigger and better actors. He's just expanded the story, made it a bit more ambitious. Um, it was made in 1976, released in 1977. He's still a little bit on the low budget side, so he has to kind of wait and get his film released a little bit. Um, the main part is played by Marilyn Chambers, who's actually a porn star who tried to break into mainstream films. Um, and now her notoriety and fame, because she was actually pretty well known, uh, helped get the film made and watched. Um, there's obviously a stereotype about the acting ability of porn stars, but she's actually pretty solid and carries the film well enough. 
Um, this film, the Cronenberg Institute, it's another, again, it's another shadowy clinic trying something new and radical. Um, it's uh, what happens is that Mar- uh, Marilyn Chambers' main character has a motorcycle crash and is on the verge of death. She just so happens to be within reach of this clinic rather than a main hospital. And they say she's not going to survive a trip in an ambulance to a proper accident emergency unit. We'll have to try and help her. Let's use our experimental surgery that we're using, which is all about, you know, um, uh, using kind of internal kind of parasites to grow organs. Um, It saves her, but it has horrendous side effects. It creates a kind of appendage that comes out of her. She has this appetite for blood. Uh, and so basically people try to have sex with her this uh, strange appendage comes out from under her arm pierces people and drinks their blood and turns them into zombies this kicks off this kicks off a terrifying epidemic which has taken over the whole country it's got body horror because it's uh, transforming the people involved it's got his perverse depiction of sexuality because what's happening is, is that her kind of Instead of having sexual desire, she's got a desire for blood, but it plays out like sexual desire. Someone tries to sexually assault her, or a guy tries to get off with her, and she kind of lets them, and then just takes their blood. And she kind of can't survive otherwise, so she has basically got the same kind of struggles as a vampire. Like, she doesn't want to kill anyone, but she needs the blood. And she doesn't realise that what she's doing is creating homicidal zombies, right? And these homicidal zombies start taking over and attacking everyone, and it starts to go a little bit into... um, apocalyptic territory because the government has to take over declare martial law um you've got Cronenberg regular Bob Silverman making a brief appearance so you've got the day sort of the pieces of of how David Cronenberg makes his film start to start to fall into place some very strange things happen there's a zombie cow because she tries to drink a cow's blood um hoping that it means she won't have to kill humans anymore but it doesn't help her and it turns the cow into a zombie so that's a bit weird um uh, uh, Santa Claus gets shot uh, because there's cool. a there's a whole there's a whole zombie outbreak in a shopping centre. There's a department store Santa like gets caught in a crossfire. So you've got like this this Santa Claus getting riddled with bullets in the middle of the screen. So David Cronenberg is kind of going, I am going to really freak you out. Do you know what I mean? There is no you know nobody is safe. Um, it's quite interesting because it flips the usual tropes because it's a woman doing the penetrating. Not to put too fine a point on it. Um, there's a really horrifying scene in a hospital operating theatre which has echoes of Dead Ringers. It, it's quite good. It's very bleak and apocalyptic. You can see his style forming. Um, it, he's really strong technically, even if he's not dealing with big budgets at this point. And he's the actors are better, but there's still a few kind of slightly amateur performances in there. Um, but you can see that Cronenberg is a keen observer of human frailty. Do you know what I mean? It's like people. He's not. You know, like Kubrick has always gone on about how basically people are quite bad and that's why bad things happen to them. Cronenberg's more like, he's more sympathetic, but he's like, you know, people make the decisions they're going to make and some of that goes wrong and people will decide to do one thing or another and that might only make the crisis worse. So he's very good at applying that and disease and transformation, no moral judgment, just portraying things. So yeah, definitely worth a watch. And I think it's better than Shivers. You can see him kind of growing and developing as a director in this. Um so that's so that's rabid, and obviously because of the interesting kind of background to the film, and that a, a porn star you know helped get the film made and like had a leading part in it. My impromptu top ten inspired by this film is the uh, top ten films that feature adult stars, uh, which adult film stars in, in mainstream films, uh, which in no particular order goes: The Big Lebowski, uh, Boogie Nights, obviously, He Got Game, An American Werewolf in London, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, Strange Days. Ghostbusters, believe it or not, The 40-Year-Old Virgin, 
Blade and Magnolia. That's a very, very eclectic list of films that featured uh, porn stars trying their luck in mainstream films. But that's um, uh, that's my Cronenberg Institute visit for the month. So, did what, you? What a wild ride! <laughs> yeah, so pretty crazy film. doing the third uh, third installment of this, the third visit of this year to the Cronenberg Institute. Um, and what I've been doing is I've been filling in the, the blanks a little bit of the Cronenberg films I haven't seen, and then I'm going to top off the year at the end with three of my favourite films that kind of sum up Cronenberg's career in a different way. So I'm, I'm still at the moment going through his early films that, that I hadn't seen before, and this one was The Brood. Uh, made in 1979, although released in most markets in 1980. He This was his kind of follow-up in the sense of it's not a follow-up to the story but he's still continuing his like body horror genre really it's a follow-up to shivers and rabid which he did earlier you know which i did in in previous episodes this year um his budgets are getting bigger the names of the actors getting involved at this there was um uh he's he's been bringing in a couple of international stars here which is oliver reed and samantha egger who'd been quite a big name actress in the 60s uh, and obviously oliver reed was a big name at the time um it's really interesting because David Cronenberg at the time called it his sort of antidote to Kramer versus Kramer, which you may not have seen, mate, but that's where Dustin Hoffman um, is in a custody battle over his child after a divorce and he has his kid living with him and has to kind of contend with the issues of fatherhood for the first time now that his wife's not there. Um, this was his kind of, Cronenberg's kind of very sort of dark and twisted version of that. And it's actually, also he called it an exorcism of the trauma of his divorce because elements of the story are inspired by his own kind of life in that he um, he had a custody battle with his ex-wife over their daughter because his wife had been... Um, it's not one of these kind of just getting back at the person I've broken up with. This is like an Amber Heard, Johnny Depp situation. There's a very specific situation here. Um, his ex-wife had uh, some problems that she went to see a psychiatrist for. She'd had some childhood trauma that she was trying to sort out. But the psychiatrist that she went to was basically a cult leader with new experimental treatments, and he basically brainwashed her. So his, his wife was brainwashed and wanted to move with the cult to California with his kid, and David Cronenberg had to fight that in court. So it's about it's about this kind of shadowy psychiatrist who's kind of got this you know unpleasant hold over people, and it's about you know how trauma carries on from childhood and the effect of a divorce on on, on everyone involved, including the kids. Um, but obviously he does it in his very twisted Cronenberg way because what's happening is, is all that trauma is manifesting in demonic children kind of sprouting from the body of, of the mum and going off and killing people because uh, it's Cronenberg and he's twisted and weird. Um, so while it's got like a serious underlying theme, it then goes into kind of mad Cronenberg territory. And these terrifying creatures are, you know, murdering people close to uh, the people in the story. Uh, negative emotions seem to manifest into these kind of, you know, killer creatures. It's more polished than previous films. It's his first outing with Howard Shaw doing the music, who has scored pretty much every Cronenberg film ever since and did the music for Lord of the Rings. Um, what did I think of it? I mean, it's genuinely scary and it's genuinely disturbing with some moments of body horror, which sort of, like I said, spring from the trauma. So it does come from a real place. And Oliver is excellent as the sinister psychiatrist. But I don't know what it is. It doesn't quite kind of work for me. It's almost as if he's kind of 
he's limited by the real life events of the story a little bit and it's kind of stuck him in this kind of world and it's not got as much of a transformation arc which is what I tend to like about Cronenberg his, his characters are kind of changed by what happens to them in the film or are changing and the film follows that um, so because I'm not as caught up in the story it does seem a little bit silly it's weird because Scanners which I'm not going to do this year is not as well acted as this on any level and basically rests solely on the really dramatic kind of head exploding scene which everyone's seen you've seen the gif you've seen it on the internet and this is better acted and better made than that but somehow the story doesn't connect with me as much um, and it's I think, I think that's partly because the characters end up acting in ways just to serve the story. Like Oliver Reed as the psychiatrist is painted as this kind of very kind of, you know, disturbing character who's kind of exploiting vulnerable people who, are, who he's meant to be helping and then changes and sort of acts differently towards the end. And it doesn't really make much sense except to make the final act work. So uh, it's good, uh, and but I didn't quite kind of connect with it as much as, as I did. It's very interesting because it does actually show Cronenberg saying he's going to use this film to kind of go through the pain of like what being divorced did to him, to his wife, to his kid, how childhood trauma can kind of manifest itself and this kind of crazy psychiatrist character. So it's a very interesting film in terms of the background, but the film itself, yeah, it's it, it's good, but it didn't quite kind of hit me the way some other earlier Cronenberg did. Um but what it did do is it enabled me to do an impromptu top 10 inspired by this film, which is uh, psychiatrists and psychiatry portrayed in films. So this is just 10 films in which psychiatrists play some sort of significant part in the story. Um, and in no particular order, Spellbound, The Prince of Tides, Goodwill Hunting, Dressed to Kill, The Sixth Sense, Equus, Antoine Fisher, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, obviously, High Anxiety, and The Silence of the Lambs. Uh, so quite a varied list there. Okay, well, so that's your resolution. Uh, glad it was a good one. Um, my resolution is the slightly less random uh, Cronenberg Institute. This is where once a month we visit the Cronenberg Institute, where we go and visit the mind uh, and strange films and interesting world of, of the great David Cronenberg. Um each month I pick up on a film. For the moment, I'm, I'm doing the films of his that I've not seen before. And then at the end of the year, I'm going to do just a couple that uh, I've seen before but really love and just want, wanted to revisit. Um, previously, we did is some of his early body horror that, that I'd not picked up on uh, and, and sort of caught up with those. We're now, we're now going through a bit of a time jump because I've seen all of his 80s output. Um, so we're now jumping to 1993. He finishes Naked Lunch... Which is, uh, which is almost uh, David Cronenberg taking his body horror into new territory, more of a sort of, you know, it's a, it's a literary adaptation that just happens to lend itself to his body horror. So he's obviously going off a different direction. But this is a huge change for him. In 1993, David Cronenberg directed a film called M. Butterfly. M. Apostrophe, so like Madame, you know, Butterfly, but done the French way. And this is based on a stage play. It has sort of it's it's sort of linked or inspired or done in the style of the opera Madame Butterfly, but even more amazing. Once I tell you what the story is about, it is based on real events. Now, what? this story and Butterfly based on real events, and it's absolutely insane. Real events. It's it's very odd that despite what a so, you know operas are always kind of really overblown and stylized. Stage plays are also also very stylized as well. You've done theatre, you, you you know how that is. Um, and this is a crazy story, so it's kind of interesting that what Cronenberg uh, did to this is he did the whole thing as a very kind of sober tone 
like a serious drama. He's really played this very straight and, and, and sober. Um, and to tell you the story, it's not really a spoiler because you find this find this out so early on, but kind of the, the real events that you find out are just so crazy. So Jeremy Irons plays a French diplomat in Beijing in the 60s who seems reasonably happy in his marriage and everything. Um, but then he meets, uh, falls in love and becomes obsessed with... Um, uh, a, a sort of a, a diva, sort of, uh, sort of. She's this kind of you know, female plays plays all the female part singers in um, in the Beijing Opera, uh, and you kind of get this kind of look at these Western you know men have this kind of real kind of fantasy about these kind of exotic Chinese women, and this and this uh, you know this uh, opera singer totally seems to put that, and he embarks on this passionate affair with her. Um, but you very quickly realise that actually this um, this singer is a man uh, who's living as a woman, and it doesn't say much in the film. But you kind of think, what, what exactly is going on here? Because he doesn't he's either aware and just ignoring it, or, or not aware because the because she's very clever about the way she does it. But the this 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 gay man living as a woman manages to conceal the fact even from someone she's having a sexual relationship with that she's actually that he's actually a man um but they conduct this passionate affair um i won't tell you all the details of the story but it is mad some of the stuff that happens but what's also happening is that either because she's been blackmailed or just because that's how, how things have turned out um the the john lone character who plays the opera singer is also um, working in working for Chinese intelligence and is spying on Jeremy Irons as a foreign diplomat and has managed to get you know is, is using him to get information on on French you know and, and Western activity in China and that it's absolutely bizarre where the story goes but this is based on real events a real guy actually had this relationship with a man living as a female opera singer and it's kind of weird because everyone else kind of knew that the, the female parts in the Beijing Opera were sung by men anyway. So it's all a little bit kind of drag. It's not a trans thing. It's about, you know, dressing as a woman. So it's very, very strange. Um, it lives it lives on the fact that the actors playing these parts are really good because Jeremy Irons is always great. He's done, he'd done stuff with David Cronenberg before, um, uh, you know, probably did his best ever performance in Dead Ringers. Um and John Lone, I don't know, have you, have you heard of John Lone or seen any of his films, mate? No. So John Lone is this guy, he's about 70 now, but he was doing stuff in like the 80s. He, his most famous film was The Last Emperor, which won loads of Oscars, and he was, I think he was nominated for a bunch of awards. He's this, he's this perfect looking Chinese leading man guy who's not in nearly enough films. And every film that he's in is just like 10 times better because he's in it. Sometimes quite average films are better because he's in them. Year of the Dragon, which I've talked about. The Shadow, which is dog shit apart from him. And and he's the bad guy in Rush Hour 2. So you might recognize him if you watch Rush Hour oh, 2 again. Oh, what a film. Um, and I rewatch those films a lot, mainly because of him. He's not been in enough films. And he's, he's so good in this as well. But it's so weird. This one's kind of about how the Western psyche has this exotic view of women. It's about a man. He's, con he's so obsessed with the idea of this woman that he's in love with. He, he kind of ignores the fact that she's not what she seems in, in kind of any respect. Um, and I won't tell you how it plays out. Um, 
having said all that, as much as I love David Cronenberg and these actors, and I can't complain about I mean, it looks beautiful, it's beautifully shot, it's well acted and everything. I just think it'd have worked better as a documentary or more in the style of the original stage play. Um, <clears throat> the naturalistic and realistic style that Cronenberg does for the acting, it doesn't really work. There are scenes where you, you see what's happening and you think, because, I mean, the Scots, you, you know, you, you've done theatre and stuff, mate, and you know how they, you don't have special effects, you've only got one set, so you have to kind of do various things that kind of give the audience an impressionistic view and their imagination does the rest. I can see how those scenes would have worked better on stage than in the movie, and they should have maybe done the whole thing more stylized and impressionistic on the screen. Um, so even even though you're watching real events and you read the Wikipedia page and you go, fuck, that really happened, it just doesn't, it doesn't come to life as much as it should. Um, it, it contrasts, it, it, it compares poorly to a film that came out around about the same time about Raised the Red Lantern, about a similar character, about a, a gay man living as a living as a woman in China with all the things that come with it. So an interesting film, and look, anything with Jeremy Irons and John Lone in it is is it, it's not wasted time watching them act. They're bloody good, and I I, I'm, I'm, I love John Lone and Jeremy Irons. So that it, it's great for that. It doesn't entirely work, but it do, it's, it's an interesting point for, uh, you know, Cronenberg to see he's going off and doing these interesting things. And the next thing he goes and does is Crash, which was a really shocking film that, you know, was banned in, in a number of places. So this is the start of Cronenberg going off and doing very, very different things. And now my favourite era of his is his body horror era. So it's kind of, that, that'll always be what I want to return to. But this was interesting, if not entirely successful. But as I always do for these things, I always come up with an impromptu top 10 about films which are inspired or linked in some way to the film I just watched. Um, so the impromptu top 10 I've got is cross-dressing in films. Now, I'm going to stay out of any gender identities debates in this because I just don't want to be involved in that bin fire of a, of, of a discussion. So this focuses on films where, for plot reasons, a character disguises themselves as another sex to make people believe they're someone else. And I'm also excluding any films where that would be a spoiler, yeah? So the impromptu top ten of cross-dressing in films is uh, Mulan, Tootsie, Some Like It Hot, Victor Victoria, Mrs. Doubtfire, Yentl, Les Miserables, uh, The Wicked Lady, Sylvia Scarlet, and I Was a Male Warbride. Um, so a bit of a bit of a varied list there. But yeah, a, a, an interesting departure for Cronenberg, uh, the latest uh, visit to the Cronenberg Institute, not as spooky or scary uh, as, as normal, but still really wild and strange in its own way. Um, so that, that's my resolution for this month. So my, my resolution uh, was to do a 12-month project of David Cronenberg films, which I'm calling the Cronenberg Institute. Each month we pay a visit to the shadowy Cronenberg Institute, uh, a, a centre of strange films which mess with your mind. Um, I've The last one we did was... Uh, I'm, 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 I've been doing in chrono chronological order the Cronenberg films I haven't seen. I haven't seen... A full years that there isn't twelve a full year's worth of uh, of Cronenberg films I haven't seen, so we are going to run out. And at the end of the year, I'm going to do three of my favourites or three of I think the most kind of emblematic Cronenberg films. But I'm still sort of filling in the gaps here a little bit. The last one I did was 1993's M Butterfly, 
which was a, a departure for Cronenberg. It's really unlike any of the other films that he's done. The rest of the 90s, he spent a little bit more in sort of typical Cronenberg territory. He did, in 1996, he did his version of J.G. Uh, Ballard's Crash, which was hugely controversial. And it wasn't a typical body horror Cronenberg film, but it was definitely controversial and focused on a lot of really strange shit, banned in a lot of places. He then did Existence, which he talked about for The Pod, which is, you know, sci-fi weirdness. It's somewhere between sort of Naked Lunch and Scanners. So, you know, very much within his wheelhouse. And then in 2002, he does something which I think is, I think it is very much a Cronenberg film because of what it deals with and how it films it. But I think the subject matter is a little bit different to the Cronenberg stuff we had before. This is from 2002. It's called Spider. And Spider was a film starring Rafe Fiennes based on a novel by a guy called Patrick McGrath. Patrick McGrath grew up, his dad was like one of the maybe not the maybe not the the governor, but but a senior person in Broadmoor dealing with like the, you know, criminally insane. And when he grew up, Patrick McGrath emigrated, but found himself working in in institutions for the for the mentally ill. And this film Spider is about a guy played by Ray Fiennes, his nickname is Spider who has been committed to an institution for decades and he's just got out. It looks more or less present day. It could be a little bit in the past. It's set in London. Um, so this could be London in like the 90s, call it that. Um, and he's been institutionalised for about 20 years. He's He's got out, but he's clearly still a bit fragile, still a bit traumatised. And they put him in a halfway house for people in a similar position to him. And... Some people you think are in this halfway house just till they get on their feet and will maybe move on. There's at least one guy there, played by John Neville, who played Baron Munchausen in the film we, the Terry Gilliam film we discussed uh, in a previous episode. Yeah, he plays an old psychiatric patient who's never left. He's been there all his life, so they might as well have left him in the institution. Do you know what I mean? But now he's at least he's got his own room and he's not been locked up or anything, you know. But he's clearly he's he's never getting he's never going out to a normal life, you know. So it's that kind of group of people. It's all basically, you know, men who have, you know, got out of, you know, from, you know, from being institutionalized, but they're still struggling a little bit with their mental health and they find a bit of work for them, all that sort of thing. But Ray Fiennes' character has a lot of sort of time on his hands, which he spends going back to the sort of deprived area of London that he grew up in, revisiting those places and remembering and reliving events from his childhood, which led to his trauma and him being institutionalized so he's basically reliving the things that led to his the episodes that caused him to to you know break down and need to be put in an institution um his parents are played by gabriel byrne and miranda richardson and we see them in flashback we see him memory and it's really beautifully done because what happens is is that he's standing he's looking through a window and you then see what he's looking at through the window and it's a scene and partly, you know, it's a flashback because it's clearly kind of thirty years ago or something, yeah. But Ray Fiennes isn't in the in the 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 scene; a child is. But you know that Ray Fiennes is remembering something and reliving it because what he does is he'll say something to himself, looking through the window, and then somebody in the room says the thing he's just said, and that that like clues you into the fact that he's remembering something that he that he lived through years and years ago. And what it tells you the story of is him like struggling with the relationship with his dad. He's very close to his mother. And then his dad gets taken up with a, a woman who, you know, who's seeing on the side. And uh, to show you that this is the, the faulty memory of, a, of a, a, a man who's still struggling with mental illness and therefore is something of a, an unreliable narrator, 
Um, Miranda Richardson plays the other woman as well. She plays like a trashy platinum blonde version of his much more kind of traditional looking mum. So Miranda Richardson's in a dual role and it's... It, it could be confusing, except Cronenberg films it so well that you follow what's going on. So in these flashbacks, you see him, like, he finds out or he sees his dad with another woman. He hates the fact that she's with another woman. His dad beats him and he's struggling with the whole thing. Um, and he... Um, uh, what led to his kind of struggle, which I'm not going to spoil the plot, unfolds. Um, it's quite low-key... It's a little bit depressing because it's, you know, quite sad lives of people, but it deals with the mental health issues of the people involved with a lot of compassion and it's beautifully filmed. Um, it's, 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 it's minor key Cronenberg, but it's really good. And it kind of, uh, it kind of shows a lot, uh, um, a lot of Cronenberg's skill outside of kind of the body horror stuff. So yeah, definitely worth a watch. Good cast. Gabriel Burns, good. Miranda Richardson's great. Lynn Redgrave's in it as well. So very good film. Didn't do very well at the box office at the time. I think this was a bit of a hard sell. But Cronenberg uh, filming in London is something that he came back to do um, for the film I'm going to be doing uh, next month, which is Eastern Promises, um, which is a very different style of film. But uh, yeah, Cronenberg starts to explore different stuff in, in the 2000s. And uh, yeah, I'm, I enjoyed this. I still prefer his body horror because that's my era. But um, he started to show some you know r real kind of variety to his skills there. And, and that was... Uh, this latest Institute, uh, Cronenberg Institute visit. Now, before we move on to the next segment of the Cronenberg Institute, uh, I have to admit an omission on my part. I do normally do an impromptu top 10 each time I talk about a film. And for Spider in the May edition, I forgot during the recording session with James. And partly because I don't want you, the audience, to go without it. And partly because my borderline OCD need for closure uh, requires me to do so I've decided to add an impromptu top 10 here inspired by the film Spider now as you uh, as you'll have heard when you uh, were listening to my discussion of the film it is about someone whose faulty memory or partial memory uh, uh, plays out flashbacks in the film reliving and reminding himself of, of things that happened and key parts of the story or film are revealed through uh, the exploration of those memories. So my impromptu top 10 inspired by that is films where memories and flashbacks of key characters uh, reveals uh, the plot of the film. Uh, and the uh, the top 10 other films other than Spider in which this happens uh, in no particular order is Memento, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, The Born Identity, Total Recall, Mulholland Drive, Old Boy, Arrival, Spellbound, the Usual Suspects, and Fight Club. There are, of course, other films that fit the bill, but I thought this was 10 interesting ones to add on to one list. Uh, I know we're cheating a little bit uh, with Arrival, but I really like it, and I like the way it plays around with time and space. So that's the impromptu top 10 for Spider. Hope you like it. Hope there's something on there that you uh, you fancy watching, inspired by this. Hope you're inspired to watch Spider by David Cronenberg as well, if you haven't seen it. And uh, this is really the end of um, May's entry in the Cronenberg Institute, and we'll see you in June for Eastern Promises. Thank you very much. My uh, project for this year is the Cronenberg Institute. Each month I go and watch a, a Cronenberg film. At the moment, I'm still doing one of the sort of nine David Cronenberg films I've not got around to seeing among his prolific output. And when I've watched all of those, I'm going to close out the year with three classic Cronenberg films that are a combination of my favourite and the most kind of, you know, typically Cronenberg, sort of classically Cronenberg films. Um, I've been going chronologically through this. So where I've got to... Uh, now is where in 2007, 
Um, Cronenberg had a hit with a film called A History of Violence, which teamed him up with Viggo Mortensen. He gets back together with Viggo Mortensen in 2007 for the film Eastern Promises. You seen this film, mate? I have not, no. So this is a London-based gangster film about the, the Russian mafia. Uh, Viggo Mortensen is, is in the lead. Um, uh, essentially, he's the driver for a Russian mafia family in London, He's kind of loyal. He, he does whatever has to be done. He disposes of a body if that's what it takes. Um, he keeps his mouth shut and he starts to earn people's trust and rise in the organisation. Vincent Cassell is the wayward sort of drinking, crazy son of the mob boss. He's trying to make his name in the family business, but he's wild and out of control. Uh, and essentially the, the head of the Mafia family kind of puts Viggo Mortensen on him as his driver to try and keep him under control. In the midst of all this, Naomi Watts is a nurse in, in London A&E who treats a teenage underage Russian girl who dies giving birth. And it's obviously that she's been trafficked and abused and, and, and been, been used as a sex worker by somebody, somebody bad. Um, she wants to kind of find out what, because uh, the, the Russian girl dies, but the daughter, the, the baby daughter is still alive. And she wants to find out more about who her family is, where she come from, where she finds out. Yeah, this is all linked to the Mafia. The trail leads back to Vincent Cassell. Um, uh, and what it means is is that the whole story about, you know, uh, trafficking of women could come out. The police start investigating. What's going to happen to the daughter? What's going to happen to Naomi Watts? Viggo Mortensen, you know, seems to just be loyal to, to the family. But there's, you know, he, he meets and talks to this nurse and maybe has... Um, conflicts of loyalty about what he's doing and what you know and, and and who he's protecting um and it's a very tough violent film it pulls no punches on the horrendous nature of the criminal business and the trafficking of young girls it's not really classic Cronenberg in the sense of being body horror or sci-fi or anything but it's very Cronenberg in the sense that he tells the story the way it is there's no he doesn't necessarily there's no preaching um sort of speech about trafficking of girls he just shows you how awful it is he doesn't make any individual judgment. He says, well, that's what it's like. That's what these gangsters are like. That's how violent they are. That's how they treat people. That's what happens to the girls in there. Um, it's a very good character study of Viggo Mortensen's character and the length someone has to go to and the compromises they have to make to you know, to do what they're doing. Um, some iconic scenes, including a terrifying knife fight and some really satisfying you know, twists and turns to the plot. Um, this is one of Cronenberg's best films. Um, while I said it's not typical Cronenberg in terms of body horror, you know, it, it's very much a gangster film and does what you need from a gangster film, but he does it his way. Um, you know, stylistically, you can tell it's him because it's so well told, so well directed, classically done. Um, and the, the bit that's kind of most Cronenberg stylistically is he kind of uses Viggo Mortensen's body as like the canvas to tell the story because Viggo Mortensen's got prison tattoos from his time in Russia. And then you, you sort of gain new tattoos as you progress in the Russian mafia. So the story of his rise through the ranks is being told on his body and also his scars from, you know, his you know, previous fights. He's had another scars that he gets through the kind of, you know, some of the very violent scenes in this film. It's like what happens to Viggo Mortensen's body is the story of the film. Um, this is absolutely brilliant. It's a fucking amazing film. Um, I'm kicking myself for not watching it sooner because I watched A History of Violence in the cinema when it came out. And I don't know, I just didn't get around to seeing this film and I really fucking should have done it. It's a really, really, really good movie. Um, absolutely brilliant slow paced um, but brilliantly done and gripping edge of the seat stuff as well honestly terrific film um, certainly one of the best kind of London like organised crime films that's ever been made up there with The Long Good Friday and stuff like that um, 
the I always do an impromptu top ten when I'm doing these uh, films, uh, where you know some aspect of the film inspires me to say, well, this film's about this, or this film features that, and then I tell you ten other films that are that are like that. Uh, and what this inspired me here is that this is one of at least four films that Viggo Mortensen and David Cronenberg did together. Um, David Cronenberg found a uh, you know, directors sometimes often like to have work again and again with the same actor or actors because they build up a relationship. And he found his guy in Viggo Mortensen. So I thought we could do an impromptu top 10 of collaborations between actors and directors over multiple films where a director has featured the same actor, you know, multiple times in their films. So no particular order. The top 10 such films, apart from Eastern Promises, is or such collaborations, uh, is Scorsese and De Niro, obviously. John Carpenter and Kurt Russell. Pedro Almodovar and Penelope Cruz, Ingmar Bergman and Liv Ullmann, Ingmar Bergman and Max von Sydow, uh, Federico Fellini and Marcello Mastroianni, John Ford and John Wayne, Werner Herzog and Klaus Kinski, Akira Kurosawa and Toshiro Mifune, and John Cassavetes and Gina Rowlands. Um, normally it's a list of films. This is a list of directors and actors who've worked together a lot. But uh, if you're interested... Any any of the films these actors and directors did together would be worth watching. And frankly, you should watch a bunch of them just to see how relationships between actors and directors develop over time. Um, so that's my impromptu top 10. That's the Cronenberg uh, Institute visit for this month. Next month, I'll be doing another uh, Viggo Mortensen starring or, or leading acting uh, film by Cronenberg, which is 2011's uh, Dangerous Method. and I know which is, you know, I've got the whole year mapped out. Uh, my yearly project is known as the Cronenberg Institute, similar to the previous projects I've done, like the Year of the Carpenter and the Kubrick Odyssey and stuff like that, in which I'm watching all the Cronenberg films I've not seen, which is not enough for a full year. So at the end of it, I've put on some classics of his, the most Cronenberg-y Cronenberg films to kind of top it off. So it's kind of a project to explore Cronenberg. And in chronological order, I'm just going through the films of his I haven't seen yet. Um, which brings us to 2011's A Dangerous Method. Now, this um, this is a historical period drama about real-life characters, and I think treats the subject very kind of soberly and probably It's quite matter-of-fact, but also quite respectful to the material. I think it stands comparison to a lot of other sort of good historical dramas in that sense. So is it like Cronenberg? You know, Cronenberg's cool. If someone says, oh, we're going all full Cronenberg, like whenever they talk about Cronenberg on um, Rick and Morty, it's always about gloopy, twisted body horror transformation. So what's this got to do with, with Cronenberg? I mean, where, the reason why I know this is a Cronenberg film and why he was interested in it is because it involves sex, mental illness, um, doctors, you know, sort of breaking new ground or, you know, sort of crossing new boundaries in kind of, coming up with something new but then breaching their own ethical boundaries to do it um and it does actually have an institute and there's always one of those in a Cronenberg film so it's kind of if he was going to do a historical drama it was going to be this one let me put it that way um it, it features the uh sort of the eminent kind of pioneering psychiatrist Carl Jung played by Michael Fassbender um and it's partly about his relationship with uh Sigmund Freud played by Viggo Mortensen but the central character is really uh, Kira Knightley, who plays someone called Sabina Spielrein. She was also a real-life character. Um, and what it is, is she's been committed to an institution for hysteria. She has 
she's having a massive, massive breakdown. And Carl Jung uses the kind of new psychiatric method pioneered by Freud to get to the bottom of her problem, which stems from the huge sexual repression of the time. I mean, she is going mad because she's got this horror. I'm going to have a bit of a pun here. It's not body horror. It's about horror about your body. She's got sexual urges that for a woman in the early 20th century are just so taboo that she doesn't think she can express them. She doesn't think she can talk about them and she's fucking losing her mind. But because Carl Jung treats her, she actually turns out to be someone who's capable of being a psychiatrist herself. And that's a really good character for them to explore. And then it's about the kind of the relationship with all three of them and how their um, how psychiatry progresses and how um, their relationship kind of you know, comes under a lot of tension. Um, made more complicated than the fact by Fassbender's character has an affair with Kira Knightley. Um, and it's, you've also got this very interesting cameo from Vincent Cassell, who is in Cronenberg's previous film. He plays like a, a hugely inappropriate maverick psychiatrist, also a real character, who just thought nothing of sleeping with his patients. He would just sleep with his patients. Oh, fuck it, I don't care. And it's this is a real guy. And from what I can see, all of this stuff is is pretty faithful to the original story. The only liberties they've taken with the historical fact is that sometimes they've got a letter between um, Freud and Jung because they wrote to each other. And sometimes they've got like a, an event they attended where we've got eyewitnesses saying what they said to each other. But sometimes they've got to fill in the blanks. Like it's very, very strongly believed. Everyone's absolutely certain that Jung and Spielrein had an affair. But it's not like that was ever in the papers. It's not like they sort of admitted it or anything, but everyone knows it happened. So they had to use their imagination a little bit to kind of expand on their story. But essentially, I mean, how it works is, is that it could have seemed a bit silly now. that Kira Knightley's character is on the verge of spending the rest of her life in a mental institution because she likes to be spanked. And the thing is, if, if in the 21st century now, if that's what you're into, fucking go for your life. I mean, we're not talking about kind of serious S&M where people end up having like stuff fucking cut off each other. We're talking about something that's really super mild now. And I think it's to the film's credit that it does actually make you believe that someone would li be literally losing their mind about it 100 years ago. Um, it's, it's just really good. It's excellent performances, really well done. It tells the story. There's no kind of tricks. It's just a really well done historical drama, but it explores, you know, sex and ethical boundaries being crossed and people's, um, you know, people being kind of being transformed, but in a different way. I thought it was really good. It was just that there's some, because it's all like stiff starch collars in like Vienna in 1910, there's a lot of subtext. No one, a lot of this stuff you can, they're saying to each other without saying it, and it's really, really well done. So, in a way, it's typical Cronenberg just because he does a fucking great job of the story. Um, I think you could watch this without being into Cronenberg's body horror stuff. I think it's just a really decent historical drama. But if you do like Cronenberg, there's some stuff in there. There's some very sly humor. And, you know, Michael Fassbender spanking Kira Knightley is obviously not the sort of thing you get in. I mean, I suppose you get it in Bridgerton and stuff like that. But in a serious drama, it's not something you normally get. So it was really good. And I think he does a really good job of exploring how taboo sex is in society, which is something Cronenberg goes back to over and over again. So this is really worth watching. It's a really good historical drama. And I feel like I know about the characters and real life events a lot better after watching the film. And I was genuinely entertained by it. It's just a straight up good movie. It's a straight up good movie about a historical era that's really, really quite interesting. Um, as always, I tend to do an impromptu top 10 for this, uh, for this piece. Uh, and because of the subject matter, I've done an impromptu top 10 of psychiatry and psychiatrists in films. Uh, in no particular order, other than A Dangerous Method, um, 10 films in which that features prominently. 
Spellbound, High Anxiety, Goodwill Hunting, A Beautiful Mind, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, obviously, uh, The Silence of the Lambs, The Prince of Tides, Dressed to Kill, Clute, and The Sixth Sense. Uh, so it's another one where you get quite a varied list of films uh, hanging around that topic. Um, so that is the Cronenberg entry for this month. Uh, next month for August, we'll be doing Cronenberg's next film, Cosmopolis. So my um, my uh, resolution and film project for this, this year is known as the Cronenberg Institute. Uh, this is where I watch 12 David Cronenberg films which is nine films of his I haven't seen in chronological order of release, and then three classics at the end. We're getting towards the end of the films of his I haven't seen. We're in the 2010s now, late career Cronenberg, and this film is called Cosmopolis. Have you seen this, mate? Uh, no, I have not. But uh, It's you, the one with Robert Pattinson. Yeah, you may be aware of this. This was one of Robert Pattinson's kind of... One of his earliest films... He, I mean, I don't know if he'd finished doing Twilight by then. He might have done, and this is one of the first films he did outside that. This is Robert Pattinson trying to distance himself as much as possible from the character he played in Twilight. And I think one of the reasons that I avoided this film or didn't really watch this film when it first came out was probably I was still a bit of a Pattinson skeptic at that point, um, which I've certainly got over now. I think he's a terrific actor. Twilight was a, a, a job opportunity he got and did a good job of back in the day. He's proved himself to be capable of a range of other things since. Uh, you know, fair play to him. Good actor. Part of the reason I wasn't super keen on watching this film is that I wasn't sure whether it was going to work. And why don't I kind of lay out what the story is and, you know, you can judge for yourself what you think this this idea is going to work. It tells the story of a young billionaire, a 28-year-old kind of whiz kid who is, like, he's a combination of, like, tech savvy but also kind of speculating on the markets and he's made billions betting on currencies using some technology algorithms that he's invented and he goes across town in his state-of-the-art limousine slash office to get a haircut um, which people think is a bit weird because he's got to go across town to get a haircut rather than get the hairdresser to come to him in his office why is he doing this he's disappearing across town his world is falling apart at this moment his, his company is losing tons of money in a single day his personal world is falling apart, his relationships are going all over the place, and the world is falling apart. There is a huge financial crash. People are protesting on the streets, attacking his limousine because he's a, you know, he's a symbol of the, the rich 1% billionaires who are fucking up the planet. And he's just kind of, in the middle of this, decides to go off and have a haircut. And over the course of this kind of odyssey across the city, I guess it's supposed to be New York, people he knows get in the limousine and talk to him he goes to different places he's diverted away from where he wants to be because there's stuff going on with the, there's a presidential visit there's a, an assassination attempt on the president uh a, a, there's a celebrity funeral all of this weird shit is going on and he doesn't seem to care that his world is falling apart he seems to be some sort of just almost diseased person who stopped caring you know he doesn't even care that he's rich he doesn't even care that he's about to not be rich and you're watching it's really a character study of like a like a hateful billionaire do you know what i mean and what i i don't know what you think of that is that is that something you'd sit down and watch mate um, yeah maybe it doesn't sound as weird as his other films yeah i mean it it is like a it is like a maybe film for me because there, there was an element of if you're going to tell a story about the 1%, you, know, you are going to spend just an hour and a half to two hours in the company of someone you absolutely despise and don't care about but that can be very compelling like in succession you know um, and I wasn't sure if the whole story playing out more or less in the limousine was going to work. Do you know what I mean? I can see why he did it, right? I can see why a filmmaker would go, ah, it's a character study of a billionaire, 
and everything takes place inside his limousine. I can see half a dozen film directors' eyes lighting up going, oh, that'll be an interesting challenge to make. Do you know what I mean? Um, it's based on a novel by a guy called Don DeLillo, who is a, a writer I really like. I haven't read all of his books. I haven't read this one, but he's a very interesting writer. He wrote Libra, which we mentioned on the pod when we were talking about um, uh, JFK and how they might have kind of used that as more of a basis for his um, uh, films than, uh, than than that Oliver Stone because it's got a really strong kind of thriller element but talks about the conspiracy to kill Kennedy he also did a film called uh, sort of wrote a book called Underworld which is this amazing uh, sort of odyssey through sort of 20 or 30 years of American history through the eyes of a number of characters brilliantly written book my general thought on these this guy's books is that they're pretty much unfilmable and I'm going to say, as interesting as this is, and I like Pattinson and I love Cronenberg, and I thought this was an interesting idea. Um, I don't think it altogether works. And I think the underlying problem is that this film is um, is basically, is this book is unfilmable. Um, there are a couple of things I'd have, I'd have done differently even so. The, the focus on Robert Pattinson sitting in his limousine, not giving a shit, sort of lessens the impact of the fact that like people are throwing like dead rats at his, at his limousine. People are rioting outside and his life might be in danger because if he doesn't give a shit, why do I give a shit, you know? Yeah. And I know that the director's trying to portray a character who's so kind of removed. It's almost like he's got so much money he doesn't know what to do with himself. He can have anything he wants, so he stops caring about anything he has, you know? Do you remember we watched that film Wadja in The Hidden Gems about a little sad girl and all she wants is a bike, Yeah. But because she's a girl in Saudi Arabia, the idea of her getting a bike is not an easy thing to get. Right. And she loves that bike. Do you know what I mean? All she wants is that bike. And that's such a simple thing. And when she gets that bike, she's the fucking happiest little girl in the whole wide world. And it's so emotionally kind of compelling that she really wants even that small, simple thing. A lot of us are quite lucky. If we want a bike, we get a bike, you know? This yeah. guy is the opposite of that. He can have absolutely anything he wants. And as a result, he does not give a shit about anything. And I understand that. And I think I agree with everything David Cronenberg is saying about rich people and financial markets and the world at large. But that disconnected, apathetic character is hard to care about. And it just separates you from the story a little bit. A couple of really powerful scenes, a couple of real shocks in the film, some good performances. Um, uh, the, the guy who played the sort of the nerdy character in um, Tropic Thunders in it, Jay Baruchel. Uh Paul Giamatti's in it. There's some, there's some good, there's some good actors in it. Um, that French actress that I always get her name mixed up. The one was in one of the three colors films. Good, good, good actors, good performances, everything else. This film got a lot of love at Cannes and some people like it. Um, it's hard to watch a Cronenberg film that doesn't have anything worth watching. There is some genuine stuff worth watching in this, but it came as no surprise to me that this is his lowest rated film on IMDb. I mean, whatever IMDb is worth, right? Um, it is, um, it's an interesting film. It's an interesting idea. It doesn't quite come off. And, you know, fair play to a director for trying something a bit different. This just didn't quite work for me. Um, people, you know, I'd recommend people watch it for themselves. They might get more of it than I did. There are people who absolutely love this film and there are people that, that it left cold. And Cronenberg films can be like that. But, I mean, this is a 5.1 on IMDb. And I think there's... IMDb scores a bit weird, aren't they, mate? Because there are there are films that are rated really highly that, or there are films that are quite shit that are like between six and seven, and you wonder how they got such a high rating. 
And there are obviously a few like terrible films that are in the bottom 100 that got like two out of 10. But quite often when a film is only five out of 10 on IMDb, it means it's it's not very good. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So an interesting idea that didn't quite work and uh, not not my favorite, nothing like my favorite kind of book, probably my least favorite kind of book film that I've watched in this process. But I'm, look, I'm still glad I saw it. I'm still glad I engaged with his ideas. Um, but inspired by that, um, I always do an impromptu top 10, unless I forget, um, of uh, of the film project that I do. And for this, I'm going to do 10 films uh, which reminded me, or Cosmo- Cosmopolis reminded me of, because they too were adaptations of supposedly unfilmable novels. Uh, these films work to, to, to differing degrees for differing reasons. But here is my list of top 10 uh, films that were made from novels that they didn't think could be turned into a film. Uh, Adaptation, Catch-22, Slaughterhouse-Five, Denis Villeneuve's Dune, Part 1, Naked Lunch, American Psycho, High Rise, A Clockwork Orange, Orlando, and Train Spotting. It's funny that um, Cronenberg's got another um, uh, entry on here, Naked Lunch, because no one thought that could be turned into a film either. So... I think that's a very interesting, diverse range of films. Some of those actually work, and they were wrong that the films were that the books were unfilmable. One or two of these uh, of these films prove that the books really were unfilmable. But uh, an interesting list, and I recommend you check them out. So that's my um, that's my Cronenberg entry for this month. Uh, for September, it's going to be Maps to the Stars. The, that's the last of the Cronenberg films I'm going to be discussing that I haven't seen before, and then we're, we're going to be doing some proper Cronenberg classics to close out the year. As I mentioned, my resolution for the year was uh, the Cronenberg Institute. This is my year-long project where we take you to the shadowy, uh, a shadowy organization uh, where a, a, a strange Mr. Cronenberg uh, concocts his uh, disturbing visions to mess with your mind. Um, I've been watching a range of his films, and the idea behind it was there were about nine, leaving out a couple of things which just, I think, don't really fit the rest of his filmography. There were about nine films of his that I hadn't seen which I'd watched in chronological order. Uh, and the final three films of the year are going to be his classic ones, which I, th- I just wanted to top them off with my favourite, or some of my favourite Cronenberg um, movies. Um, this is the last one of his that I'd not seen before, and it's called Maps to the Stars. Not sure if you've seen this, mate? No, I've not even heard of it. So this was the first film he did. He did a couple, He did actually did a Cronenberg film called Cosmopolis, which I did last month while he was still doing the Twilight films. This was the first film that, uh, Robert Pattinson did after he was completely done with Twilight. They'd done all the film, films and it was time for Robert Pattinson to have his post-franchise career. You know, the way Daniel Radcliffe went off and did a range of other stuff after he was done with um, uh, Harry Potter, yeah? And he's actually only a supporting role in this film, but David Cronenberg does credit Robert Pattinson agreeing to be in the film with, with um, uh, the project getting financed and actually getting made because he was a big enough name that said, well, if, if our Pats is in it, you can have your money here, go and make the movie. Um, it's actually a more of a star vehicle for um, a Julianne Moore, who plays a, a, an aging actress, and uh, Mia Wasikowska as uh, a, a, a a woman with uh, injuries and dark secrets from her childhood who comes to Hollywood. And it's kind of an ensemble piece. It, you know, it's in the same ballpark as uh, Shortcuts, Magnolia, and a little bit of Two Days in the Valley, which we watched for the pod, where you've got interconnecting stories in and around Hollywood. 
Um, Julianne Moore is a, 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 a sort of a, a washed up actress worried about her declining career. She's haunted by visions of her dead mother who abused her. Um, Evan Davis, who I've not seen anything else, although he looks strangely familiar, plays a horrifically unpleasant child actor who is recovering from child addiction and childhood trauma, but is such an asshole it's very hard to like him. Um, Mia Wasikowska plays a, a, a woman who we quite quickly find out, I'm not spoiling much of the plot here, is his older half-sister, uh, who has been away in an institution and isn't meant to be hanging out with him, but she comes to try and find him in Hollywood, um, starts talking to family. John Cusack and Olivia Williams are the parents of the child actor who are messed up in their own ways. Um, Cusack is a quack psychiatrist with his own cash, uh, with his own sort of... Um, TV show and his mum uh, Olivia Williams plays the mum of the child actor who's, who makes a living managing his career and they're obviously more interested in milking the cash cow than in their parental responsibilities uh, Robert Pattinson is a wannabe actor and writer who drives a limo who gets involved with uh, Mia Wasikowska and Carrie Fisher plays herself in a kind of uh, sort of smaller role and if you've seen any of those films like, you know, Shortcuts or Magnolia or The Player or any, any of these films where you have interconnected stories like lifting the lid on Hollywood, it, it, it's kind of familiar to that. What makes it different is that David Cronenberg is much more of an outsider in Hollywood. Yeah. He is, um, he is Canadian. He makes most of his films, uh, you know, in Canada. He, you know, his films get released in America and he works with American actors, but he's definitely not part of the Hollywood establishment in that sense. So he just has a, he's, he's observing these characters just from one, one remove. It makes his perspective a bit different. Um, obviously his films also because they tend more towards a European audience he, he's a lot more kind of frank about sex and violence and, and illness and all that sort of thing so while other films have a lot of darkness and trauma he goes to places no one else does because he's Cronenberg schizophrenia, incest, hallucinations, obsession deeply flawed characters I mean what one, one bit that I really couldn't um, you know you have like Hollywood people not caring about anything but their tiny little world and, you can't, and, and like, like being you know selfish about everything it's always what how, how does this affect them but there's one scene in which an actor only gets a part because another actor has suffered a childhood trauma so sorry has, has, has suffered a, a family bereavement and they celebrate the bereavement because it's got them the part they've always wanted and you're like oh my god honestly i was shocked more shocked as shocked as i've been about like any violence or anything it's just to see an, a, a, a character that happy that someone's died right um and it's just a it's just a scary in a different way because these people are really kind of screwed up um and you you, you can partly sympathize with them because they're, they're doing this from a place of trauma this you know there's an actor who's you know she was abused by her mother and she now has hallucinations you know where her mother is still dominating her life so you kind of understand why they would be um, as damaged as they are, but it's still, it's still a tough watch. Um, but really compelling. I liked it better than Cosmopolis. I was much more kind of engaged with and gripped by these characters, even though I didn't really like any of them. Um, what, what other Cronenberg films does it remind me of? It reminds me a bit of Dead Ringers. It's not as good as Dead Ringers, um, because despite his best efforts, there is, it's hard to fully sympathize with the characters, but it, it stands up well genuinely disturbed and creeped out and it works towards a really bleak ending it's one of those bleak endings that you know is coming but it's still like a gut punch when it happens um the only sort of problem i had with the film is that because it, because of its low budget um it there's there's a couple of bits of poor special effects that that let it down 
But let's face it, there's some more expensive films than this have had the same problem with CGI that didn't look right. Do you know what I mean? But uh, otherwise, very, very good. And that's sort of me. I've kind of done Cronenberg now. I've actually sort of completed Cronenberg. I've seen all of his films. Um, and I've seen. I've now seen all of his films where he's gone off to do like other stuff, his non-body horror, non-sci-fi horror stuff. So that was that was big. Um, I'd recommend this, but it's not an easy watch. Um, as always, inspired by my film from the the project, I always do an impromptu top ten. Um, because this is like an ensemble piece with inter interconnected stories or characters, I've done a, a top ten of similar films where it tells the stories of multiple characters or or, or sort of plot lines that that are all kind of loosely connected. Um, and in no particular order, although the first one is the best, Amacord, Do the Right Thing, Pulp Fiction, Shortcuts, Magnolia, Gamora, Amoris Peros, Secrets and Lies, Nashville, Babylon. Uh, loads of examples of this. I've just given you a very brief selection. But, I mean, if you like that ensemble thing, this is definitely one for you. Um, and it's not an accident that Robert Altman has two, two films on this list because he was very good at that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, that's the Cronenberg Institute for this month. So next month, we start talking about the uh, familiar Cronenberg classics uh, that I've uh, thrown in to round out the 12, uh, and we will start with his 1986 horror classic, The Fly. But that's the Cronenberg Institute for this month. Uh, which leaves my resolution, which, as I uh, mentioned at the beginning of this uh, segment, is uh, the Cronenberg Institute. Um, I called it that because a lot of Cronenberg, especially the classic Cronenberg films, frequently have some sort of shadowy institute or organization where weird, crazy shit happens. Uh, and the particular, the Cronenberg Institute, where crazy shit happens, is basically the inside of that guy's head. He always imagines some stuff which really blows your mind. Um, I've been watching various of his films, all the ones that I haven't seen from his kind of early kind of, you know, nasty, more independent films through to his classic 80s body horror era, which I kind of seen most of. Uh, and then I picked off all the other ones that he did, which got quite varied, actually, like gangster movies like Eastern Promises and, uh, you know, dramas like Maps to the Stars and stuff like that. And I'm now, I just, for the end of it, I've picked three of my favourite Cronenberg films, I wavered over this. I was going to include Naked Lunch, but I didn't. I love Naked Lunch. It is a masterpiece. I just thought I would put in three films, which I think are like, you know, you know, considered his absolute classic era. Um, and the latest one is The Fly. Have you seen The Fly, mate? I think I was quite young when it was on. It kind of scared me, so I put it off. Yeah. It's a very creepy film. Yeah, so this is the first David Cronenberg film that I ever saw. I didn't know who he was. I hadn't heard of him. This is one of these films, it was made in 1986, I think it didn't actually get shown in the UK until 1987 and then came out in video sometime after that. So I'm in my teens when, this is the era where VHS copies or, or maybe recorded off the telly sometimes of like certain films were circulated all the time. Oh, this has got the bit where the guy gets shot in the head or this is the bit where she gets her tits out and then Jason kind of goes and stabs everybody in a Friday the 13th film. It's one of those films where people would go, oh, look at this bit, look at this bit. But unlike a lot of those look at this bit kind of films that used to get circulated by then, this is a really fucking classy film. This is a really fucking well-made film. And the background to this is that David Cronenberg had done his, his early kind of disreputable stuff. I think I mentioned earlier the episode that he did it was either Rabid or uh, or Shivers, where uh, he, he it caused such a scandal that he was evicted from his flat 
because his his rental lease had a morals clause and they saw this film and said you violated our morals clause and kicked him out of his flat that sort of scandal he used to cause he did the film scanners where someone's head explodes and that was what he was kind of known for this kind of body horror this kind of alternative stuff and he got the attention of hollywood and was hired to direct a stephen king adaptation called the dead zone which is really good by the way but it's not really a very David Cronenberg-y film. David Cronenberg comes in and says, look, I'll show you that I am a good film director. I have technique. I can get the actors to do what they need to do. I will pace, edit, direct, and deliver you a really good Stephen King adaptation of his novel, The Dead Zone. And it's really decent. It's got Christopher Walken, uh, Martin Sheen. Um, and everyone went, oh, nice job, David Cronenberg. You, uh, you know, we, we like your, I like the cut of your jib. What, what would you like to do? And he was working, I think, because we did this on a one that got away at round about this time on a version of Total Recall. And for the reasons that get uh, described in the the uh, the episode that we did of that, that fell through. Um, he uh, he said, okay, well, what, what shall I do? And this version of The Fly was knocking around. And The Fly had originally been a film made in 1958 based on a short story, a horror short story about a scientist who is trying to create teleportation and he experiments on himself. He teleports himself from one machine in his kind of lab to the, the other machine on the other side of the lab. And it all seems successful except a fly was in the, um, was in the teleport pod with him and he's fused with the fly and starts to turn into one. They did it in 1958 with zero special effects and not very good people making it. And the film's actually quite crap. It's absolutely ripe for a remake. It's a perfect example of a movie that needs a remake because it's a really good idea that needs to be told by someone who's really good at it. Now, Mel Brooks of, you know, uh, Young Frankenstein and Blazing Saddles fame has at this time decided that he wants to make films other than kind of his Mel Brooksy comedies. But he's been advised, I think rightly, that people won't let him direct films like that because of his reputation. So he's producing these films for other people. He produced The Elephant Man. He produced this range of really interesting films. He's producing The Fly. This other film director whose name escapes me and I've not even heard of outside of this was all set to make the film. And he suffered a family bereavement. And Mel Brooks says, take some time off and we'll see. It gives go about three months to kind of do it. And then Mel Brooks says, look, I really would like to hold the film open for you. But if we are going to kind of keep everybody together and, and the whole thing falls through, we've got to direct it now. If you are up for it, I'll support you directing this film. If not, I'll let you out of your contract if you don't feel ready to do it. And the guy says, no, I'm still not ready. I've got to look after my family. So that guy drops out. David Cronenberg only gets to direct this film because his Total Recall version didn't happen and because another guy dropped out of this film, which is so weird because he is the perfect director for this film. Because this is a film where, well, they want to make a... It's a reasonably big budget. It's certainly aimed at the mainstream. They want to make a mainstream horror movie that is going to hit audiences and is going to get young, sort of disreputable little buggers like me going, oh, yeah, watch this movie and share it with my friends. And it delivers exactly that. It delivers exactly that movie, which delivers all the horror beats that you absolutely need, and yet it's completely a David Cronenberg film because he just uses it as an excuse to do a body horror transformation film, but a really, really good one because you follow the the main character, the professor played by Jeff Goldblum, trying to do this, the scientist trying to do it, why he decides it's time to experiment on himself, one small error, and then it, and it beautifully you know says... In, in the original film, right, he comes out of the teleportation pod with a fly's head, right? That's how they do it in the first one. It's fucking terrible. In this, he doesn't even notice that the fly was in the pod to begin with. 
but then he notices his body changing. He goes, oh, suddenly he can kind of jump faster and doesn't need as much sleep as he used to. But then he finds strange hairs on his... Uh, and then it gets worse and worse and worse until he is actually transforming into a fly. And you follow the story, and it's so well done, and it's so well paced that you're horrified by it, and it's got proper scary moments. He smashes through a window and grabs people and stuff like that. And yet you feel really sorry for him because it's just a fucking mistake. You like this guy at the start of the movie, and you can see him fucking turning into and deteriorating into this, into this, into this creature. You feel really fucking bad for him. He's in love with the Gina Davis character, and she feels really bad for him as well. So you feel really sorry for this guy while being horrified by him. And because it's David Cronenberg, he pulls no fucking punches about how horrible it all is. There's the famous scene where you work out that the fly now can only eat, the fly man can only eat by vomiting his this acidic kind of stomach acid onto his food. And then when it... Um, dissolves he sucks it up so when there's a conflict between him and another human character you can guess what he does to attack that person so lots of proper like horror moments but a really well done really well made film where you genuinely care for and relate to the characters that it's happening to it's a fucking top-notch film it's really really good i don't think it's further squeamish because it's pretty sort of grim about the transformation into a fly and what happens um but it's really really well made um, what's interesting is that um, it's a good example of David Cronenberg just knowing exactly when his film should start and when it should finish and just giving you what you need in the story because the the start of the film is Gina Davis's science journalist going to a, a kind of a, a dinner party type event where lots of scientists are talking about their new inventions she meets Jeff Goldblum and he tells her about his invention you get no exposition. You don't see her at her um, office going, yes, go to the event, find someone who's got a good invention. No, you just, the first scene, he's chatting with uh, Jeff Goldblum. They obviously like each other and he gives a few hints about his um, about his experiment and then the story goes on. It's like, wow, you've not, you, nothing extraneous, right? Only what you need for the story. And then the end, the story resolves itself and you don't get the end scene where they're sitting afterwards talking about what's happened or any of that. No, story's finished. And it's just like, wow, this is like, not one minute is wasted. Well done characters, well made film. Made in 1986, the special effects still hold up really well. Look, some of it's obviously puppet work, but it really holds up well in every single respect and just shows exactly how good David Cronenberg is. And there are going to be David Cronenberg films on this list and they're going to be great David Cronenberg films that I think, if you watch The Naked Lunch, that's not for everyone. Okay, you watch his body horror, that's not for everyone. If you like good, gory scary horror films this is the perfect david cronenberg film for you to watch because it's absolutely absolutely um just everything it needs to be it's probably his most accessible kind of horrory body horror film from his 80s era i can't say enough about this film this film is great um it's you know no no accident that i was i was always going to include this in my list of 12 so that's the fly for me it's probably not your kind of movie mate but it's genuinely well made well done film it's you know not for something as gory and kind of, you know, with as, as much kind of messy detail as it is, it's not trashy at all. It's just a really fucking well-made, top-notch horror movie. So yeah, that's what I think I, about that. Yeah, I know it's uh, it's quite a celebrated kind of cult classic kind mm -hmm. of film, but it's definitely not my kind of thing. No, definitely not your kind of thing. Now, as I always do in these uh, in these cases, is I always use the uh, the Cronenberg film or the John Carpenter whatever film I'm doing in a given year as an excuse to do an impromptu top ten of like ten other films that I thought of when I was watching this more or that are you know have something in common with this movie. 
And this is a pretty simple one. This is an impromptu top 10 of remakes that are better than the original. Uh, so in no particular order, 10 remakes like The Fly, which are better than the original. Maybe some of these more arguable than others. Uh, the Thing. Uh, the Maltese Falcon. The Humphrey Bogart one happens to have been a remake. Uh, the Wizard of Oz, which people don't realise was a remake. Ocean's Eleven. Heat. Little Shop of Horrors. Last of the Mohicans. The 2018 version of A Star is Born. Man on Fire. And Some Like It Hot. Uh, there's a couple I haven't included from this because not everyone agrees that they're better than the original, like the uh, Sorcerer, Scarface, Nosferatu, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Uh, some people think The Departed is, is, is better than the original, but I don't. Uh, and I haven't included Casino Royale because it's not really a remake. The first film called Casino Royale is just an absolute travesty and that doesn't count. But that's 10, that's 10 remakes I would recommend you watch because they are considerably better than the original. Uh, and that's, that's what I had to say about David Cronenberg this month. Institute. Uh, it, as always, I, I do like a little curated list every year that I've chosen. I've done John Carpenter, I've done Kubrick, and now I'm doing Cronenberg, where I've picked 12 films of his, nine that I'd not seen before to complete my big filmography of him. And I'm now in the bit where I'm doing some classic Cronenberg. Um, and the one I'm doing this, uh, this month is uh, Dead Ringers from 1988. Now, last month we did The Fly, which was the first Cronenberg film I'd ever seen, which I saw because it was a horror video that everyone was watching when I was young and turned it on wow this actually struck me so I started to find out about David Cronenberg this is the second one of his I saw Dead Ringers which again I found out I, th at the point that I'm watching this film for the first time I'm, I'm I'm not really jumping on board and watching all of Cronenberg's films I watched this film because Jeremy Irons had just won the Oscar for Best Actor for Reversal of Fortune in 1990 and in his like winner's interview they said, do you think this is your best work? And he said, no, my best work is in Dead Ringers from 1988. It's a David Cronenberg film where I play twins. And I went, okay, well, if Jeremy Irons says that's his best film, I might tune into that and see what, see what it's all about. So I'm watching a David Cronenberg film where he plays... Let me just... I made a note that I want, I want to capture the, the summary of this properly. Um, he plays twin brothers, Elliot and Beverly Mantle, who are not just twins, but live together poses each other including to women they go out with and they both study science and work as gynecologists right um they are in a codependent relationship beverly is the sensitive almost sickly twin who you know barely you know he's shy and tortured elliot is the more assertive and almost slightly cold and sinister of the twins he's the one who goes out and seduces women pretends to be his brother and then hands them over to to Bev, um, you know, he basically says, you'd be a virgin if I didn't chat up these women for you. They get involved with an actress who's desperate to have children, but has an abnormally shaped cervix. That's why she's come to them. She's a gyne you know, she needs a gynecologist. The assertive brother seduces her, um, pretending to be his, his sort of uh, timid uh, twin, gives it to his brother as a girlfriend. It's hinted that, you know, like you say, Bev is, you know, you're not sure who's, you know, more capable with women in that sense, but you maybe get the feeling that if Elliot does the work to chat them up, maybe Bev, Bev is the nicer one to be with. Do you know what I mean? Uh, 
they're completely unethical. They sleep with their patients. They sleep with women who think they're sleeping with the other brother. So even though the younger brother is like timid and 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 seems more sympathetic, he's still completely complicit in this kind of really weird cycle of behaviour. It comes out that the actress finds out that they've been sharing her and she didn't know which one she was sleeping with half the time. She goes ballistic, understandably tells him to fuck off. The the uh, the weaker twin, Beverly, is broken by this and gets into drugs. The old, the other brother de- de- realizes he can't function without his brother and tries to get him off the drugs. But it, it, in the end, he, he gets into drugs as well. They go into a downward spiral. They start to hallucinate about mutant women. They develop new, strange, and terrifying surgical instruments for their jobs as gynecologists. And drugged up, and we're having nervous breakdowns. They try and operate on women with these uh, uh, new uh, implements, which freaks everyone out and gets them in trouble. And it's about their downward spiral and then the complete mess they get into. Um, you want to know the maddest thing about this film? It stars Meryl Streep. Yeah, it's based on a true story. Uh... Uh, I mean, for fuck, everything I've just read to you. Now, I'm sure Cronenberg has added details. I'm not sure if they invented surgical instruments, which look absolutely terrifying in the film, by the way. Okay. But the st- the basic plot line that happens in this film is true. There were twin gynecologists who got into drugs and couldn't function without each other and went into this terrible di- downward spiral. Cronenberg, I think, has... Uh, you know, invented a story based on that idea, but the, the the fundamental central plot line is a true story, which fucking blows my mind. Um, uh, Jeremy Irons is absolutely amazing as the twins. You completely believe that there's two different people up there on screen. You believe that they're two different characters. He talked when he was talking about the performance that one of them walks on the balls of his feet, one of them walks on the heels of his feet, but it's so much more than that. You can see that, honestly... You go, yeah, that's him, that's Beverly, that's Elliot. Honestly, you, his, his performance portraying, bringing two different but twin, you know, physically identical people to life, absolutely amazing. His his performance is in, absolutely amazing. So good. Um, the special effects are great. There is no CGI used there to expose the film twice. So what would happen was Jeremy Irons would walk down a corridor you know, on the left-hand side, and then in the next take, you'd walk down the corridor on the right-hand side, and they would have to superimpose the film on top of it. You never see the join. But there's no cheating where you're looking over the shoulder of a double for one guy's dialogue, and then Jeremy Irons sits and... Jeremy Irons talks to Jeremy Irons in the movie, and you completely fucking believe it's happening. And David Cronenberg's kind of very kind of objective, kind of naturalistic, realistic filming style makes you 100% believe in what you're watching. And, you know, it's chilling, as always, he's quite detached and doesn't judge, but because he kind of tells it like it is, you know, and doesn't spare the details, you do find yourself sympathising. They're damaged people. They do completely terrible things, but they're damaged people, and you you sympathise with their terror of being without each other and that kind of thing. So as mad and detached from reality as this gets, it always feels realistic, which makes when there is some blood and gore and things going horribly wrong, makes it all the more more disturbing and chilling. It's just a really, really very good film, which puts all of Cronenberg's skills to really good use. It also shows him moving out of body horror, but still using what he learned from body horror to still make really disturbing stories. It gives you an idea of what the direction he would go in. It's no surprise that the guy who did this went on to do The Naked Lunch and Crash. Um, But it is the sign of him taking that very meticulous directing skull and exploring disturbing themes, but in a new way. Um, he, 
I still love his his weird, crazy stuff like Videodrome and, and The Fly and, and Naked Lunch and stuff, but this is the work of a really fucking good director, really kind of hitting his peak. It's a really, really terrific good film. It's just, it's such a well-done story and, and so mad, so mad that any of this, if any, if 1% of what David Cronenberg puts on screen actually happened, it, this is a fucking weird world we live in. That's all I can say. Um, and I, honestly, I believe it. Um, they've made this into a series with Rachel Weisz, the first agenda of the twins. I've heard it's very good. I haven't watched it yet, but I will. Uh, good movie. Just a really, really good movie. Uh, and as always, in honour of um, uh, the, the the Cronenberg entry, I always do an impromptu top 10 inspired by it. Um, because Jeremy Irons said that you know he should have won an Oscar for this performance rather than the one he did, I've got an impromptu top 10 of performances that Oscar-winning actors should have won for instead of the film they did win for. So, uh, Al Pacino, The Godfather Part 2, or half a dozen others instead of um, Scent of a Woman. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, The Wolf of Wall Street. Paul Newman, The Verdict. Whoopi Goldberg, The Color Purple. Denzel Washington, Malcolm X. Kate Winslet, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Jack Lemmon, The Apartment. Jeff Bridges, The Big Lebowski. Tom Hanks, Big and Henry Fonda, The Grapes of Wrath. Uh, whatever you think of what performance people should have won for or not, that's that's 10 good films right there, if you haven't watched any of them. So uh, that's my impromptu top 10, and that's what I have to say about Cronenberg this month. Um, now, my final film in the Cronenberg Institute, as I say, every month we visit the shadowy organisation where the uh, rather strange and, and disturbing um, Mr. Cronenberg uh, creates these visions to mess with our minds. Um, I've left for his final film... It's not my very, very favourite Cronenberg film because that's probably The Naked Lunch. But I think this is the most... This is peak Cronenberg. This is Cronenberg where he took... He was absolutely doing everything that he's famous for in one movie because it's he's still in his weird shit body horror era. But he's take, Hollywood's taken notice and he's got bigger actors and better budgets and, and just starting to expand what he's doing. Uh, and it's Videodrome. This is from 1983. Um... And it's absolutely mad and batshit insane. James Woods is the perfect leading man for this story, twitchy and seedy. He plays the um, the proprietor or the manager of a a cable TV station back in the eighties. At the time when that stuff was, that was where you started to see all the sensationalist content. But what happens is someone sends him a video of what could be a snuff movie or something else is going on, where people are basically creating their own kind of weird, sick films. Um, and it's called Videodrome, and the people behind them are up to something, and he doesn't know what it is. He's fascinated because he thinks people are going to love this. This is like the ultimate, you know, just, you know, instead of just showing softcore sex films and, and, and exploitation action films, this is the next level. This is going to get everybody tuning in, but he gets caught up in this strange world, and everything goes a little bit mad. It, it's got stuff like um, he starts to lose it, and his body starts to change. His body turns into a VCR player. His like a wound open ups in his abdomen, and he can put videos in them and play them directly in his head, right? And it's really interesting because what David Cronenberg has has uh, got to here is that without any of the technology available, the future, and you know of what it would actually, you know, what the tools that this would happen, he's basically predicted people creating their own content. And, you know, if you, you know, going looking for weird shit and you don't have the internet back then, but he's basically created that, 
you know, that idea. And the idea of people being radicalized by the content they're watching, by the videos they're watching, which is something that's happening today. But he does it in his weird, strange Cronenberg way. And the people behind the Videodrome have got a political agenda. So they start trying to brainwash him into assassinating people. But maybe he's going to take his own course. He has this really strange, dark relationship with Debbie Harry from Blondie, who has an acting performance in it. She's actually pretty good. Uh, and then it takes you off into this really dark, terrifying world. Um, really fun, really mad, really mental. Um, a, a fun fact, at, at the end, a character... Uh, this isn't the spoiler because you have to watch the film to understand what's going on. A character kills themselves. With, with the catchphrase, long live the new flesh. Or the, world's cha- you know, the world has changed. And the original ending was after that happens there would just be a caption on screen saying, your turn. And they said, okay, that's a bit too far. We're going to get accused of like trying to p- make everybody kill themselves. There was already a moral panic about people killing, killing themselves from listening to heavy metal records. Can't have that. So they changed it to just a fade to black. But they changed the ending because that was too far, even for David Cronenberg. Um, it's 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 messy in places because it's full of ideas um, and you know goes off into sort of weird directions. But James Woods is great. It's one of his best films. It's one of Cronenberg's best films. Absolutely mad stuff, thrilling, fascinating, strange, and crazy. Everything that I love about Cronenberg in a film. Um, so I mean, so that that's been the Cronenberg Institute. It is. I've really enjoyed doing this because it, it's 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 enabled me to watch all, like basically all but one of the Cronenberg films that I've not seen. The one I've not seen is a mo- motorcycle film he did, which doesn't really doesn't really fit in his his, his filmography. Um, and then I was able to just stick three of of the best ones on there to kind of close it off. Um, I have an idea for my for, for next year's project, which I'm really going to enjoy. But I, I've really enjoyed doing this. I hope this has inspired people to watch Cronenberg. If you if you if you've already seen all these films, I hope you enjoyed this recap that we've done of them. If you do want to watch Cronenberg, I recommend all the films that we've watched, you know, for this for this year. But some other ones not covered in this project, which are really worth um, watching, are Naked Lunch, which is his masterpiece, Crash, even though it's a tough watch, Existence. We've covered on the pod before. If you like sort of strange sci-fi about virtual reality, that's worth watching as well. A History of Violence is a straight-up excellent kind of violent gangster film, um, and and The Dead Zone. Um, this is a, his Stephen King adaptation where it's his most mainstream film, but it's a really good Stephen King adaptation. One of the best. If you like Stephen King horror films, this is really good. Christopher Walken and Martin Sheen are very, very good in it. Um, and it's an example of when you give Cronenberg a big mainstream opportunity, like he needed a total recall. He might've been given a version of Return of the Jedi to do. He just showed how good he was at making films and he should have been given more opportunities to do what he does. He's still out there making his new films. Thoroughly recommend it. Um, but uh, that's you know that that's what I do with the Cronenberg Institute, and I'm, I'm, I'm I hope you've enjoyed what we've done. Um, as always, I finish with an impromptu top ten inspired by the film. And this is films that changed their endings, and we're glad that they did. Yeah, right. So without spoiling this, because some people might not have seen the ending of these films, these are all films that had a different ending to the one that we saw in the finished film or the theatrical release. And it's a good job that they changed it because it was better the way that we actually saw it. You know, it's not like Blade Runner where actually it was better the the other ending. This is, we got the right ending. Um, Get Out, uh, True Romance, When Harry Met Sally, Terminator 2 Judgment Day, Dodgeball, The Shawshank Redemption, Die Hard with a Vengeance, Alien, Casablanca, and Doctor Strangelove. Now, 
this is a a good list of films to watch. Those are all terrific films, but it's also a good way to have like a um, if you want to go down a Google rabbit hole, Google what the actual endings of all those films were. I think you'll find it really interesting what what might have been if they if they'd got the uh, the alternative endings. Um, I haven't included Twenty Eight Days Later in this list because even though I like the changed ending, it's controversial, and some people think they should have stuck with the original. Um, there are loads of other films with alternate endings. It's a fun rabbit hole to go down, uh, but that's my impromptu top ten, and that is the Cronenberg. Uh, institute for this month and indeed for this year thank you for going on that twisted and strange journey with me thanks very much for joining us for this exploration of the Cronenberg Institute if you haven't seen David Cronenberg's films before hopefully you found something new to watch here whether it's from his early body horror classics his 80s heyday, or later films where he branched out into various other genres. This is the third annual project I've done as my New Year's resolution. If you've enjoyed the Cronenberg Institute, check out my previous projects, The Year of the Carpenter and 2022 A Kubrick Odyssey. I'll be building another year-long project for 2024, which will be announced soon. Thanks also to my co-host James Adamson, and to Podbean and Audacity for their continued support. And of course, thanks to David Cronenberg for 50 years of challenging, unsettling and entertaining his audience. The music was Seinsucht by Sasha Ender. Our other special anthology episode, Legal Cage of Consent, will be out soon, where James explores 12 Nick Cage films picked at random. This will be followed by a next regular episode starting on the 25th of January. Until next time, stay safe, watch lots of films, and may your life be as awesome as you pretend it is on social media. Long live the new flagship.